Well, hey, it's good to see you this morning. If you are visiting with us, and I haven't had, not, had the honor and privilege of introducing myself to you, my name is Jason Williams. I do have the honor and privilege of pastoring uh, here at Solid Rock and uh, leading uh, among a fantastic elder body, uh, which Ken, who prayed, is one of the elders, and I do consider it an honor to be a uh, pastor here at this church, but uh, an honor that you would trust us with your time this morning, and uh, so I'm glad that you're here. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 1. If you've been in the series with us and you've found Romans, you're going to go to the right in your Bible, past First and Second Corinthians. You'll get to the the uh, part of the New Testament I call the General Electric Power Company, just a simple way that I use to remember the order of the books, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and we're in Galatians this morning. Um, if you are new joining us, we are this year going through a series entitled Letters to the Church, where we are looking at these New Testament letters written by the Apostle Paul to the first century church, where he uh, encourages them and addresses issues within the church, allowing God to speak to us as a 21st century church and how we can be more like Christ in our personal lives, but also as a church body. And so um, we've made it uh, through Romans, and now we're starting Galatians today. And we'll start in Galatians chapter 1. A couple of things just in intro to get us ready to start Galatians. Um, one, it is a very personal letter. There's so much dripping from the words of Paul in this letter that sound a lot like a father writing to a son who he hasn't seen in a couple of years. There is thick emotion. Uh, there is a little bit of a scolding to be had, if you will, where uh, Paul uh, speaks very candidly and openly and correcting a few things. Um, but something that uh, is different about this letter to the church, the churches in Galatia, is that um, the intro itself is different and sets the pace for the whole letter. Now, what we're not quite sure of uh, in terms of, of, of the recipients of this letter uh, are, are, are really are who the exact recipients are, and here's, here's the reason why. So if you're trying to pinpoint geographically who the recipients of this letter were, there's going to be a little bit of difficulty because... Uh, there is a region, there was a region in uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, uh, a region known as Galatia that was comprised of all these smaller communities and villages and small towns. However, within this region, there was a small town called Galatia. And it would be the equivalent of saying, uh, I'm writing this letter to the churches in West Texas. You could be meaning two different things, West, comma, Texas, right, or West Texas. And so we're not quite sure uh, which, uh, which people were the exact recipients, but we can tell from the intro that it was written to multiple congregations to be passed along from church to church. And we know that Paul was very active from uh, Luke's account in Acts. Paul was very active in this region, taking the gospel early on to small communities and starting churches, okay? And so as we get ready to, to read this, we understand that these were communities that Paul was very familiar with. Um, he speaks to them very personally, and you can even begin to feel uh, some of his passion uh, welling up as he writes. As a matter of fact, at one spot, he says to them, I wish that I could be present with you so you could sense my tone, right? And so you've got an author writing a letter, realizing that the people who are reading it probably wouldn't be able to sense his tone. He's saying, I wish I were with you so you could hear my tone of voice, you could see my eyes, and so it's been some years now since Paul's been in this area. Paul brought to this community the gospel that he had received from Christ, and he presented it to them, and they responded to it, and a church sprung up. 
And early, uh, early on in this church life, a lot of things were going well. Um, this was a church that fell deeply and madly in love with Jesus and the grace that he freely offers without having to earn it or pay it back, but by faith alone that you could be saved. Well, since then, though, something has happened. And we're not quite sure who the people are, but we realize that people have snuck into the church since Paul has been gone and begun to distort the gospel, specifically add things to the gospel. And so what we're, what we're going to do today, the sermon title is No Other Gospel, really could be a subtitle for the whole letter, if you will, as Paul, chapter by chapter, addresses the issues of trying to add to a gospel that is already good enough as it is. And so what we're going to see as we move through this series is a significant difference between being conformed into a religious mold versus being transformed into the image of Christ. You see, this community, much like even church communities today, were quick to begin adding to the gospel this religious regimen, if you will, of things to do externally to fit in, right? And so they began to add to this beautiful and simple gospel of Jesus. Starting in verse 1, Paul begins with these words. He identifies himself as Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man. He's going to bring that up again in a minute. But through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God and of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, a lot of what we just read isn't different from how Paul intros his letters. But there is something different in this. Along with these personal introductions and phrases, we find just these first five verses tempered with theology, and it really sets the pace for the letter, if you will, where Paul is about to confront them over distorting the gospel. He begins with, let me remind you what the gospel is, as he walks through these essential elements of the gospel. So we'll start there today together. The first thing is this, if you're taking notes, We read in that first verse, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God our Father who raised him from the dead. So if you're taking notes, the first thing is the resurrection of Jesus is an essential element of the gospel. Now we understand the resurrection follows the death. We understand that what Christ did on the cross is a very monumental moment in human history and a very monumental moment in the gospel message, right? But when we tend to hear from Paul on what happened at the cross, his focus seems to be more on the resurrection. Now, I don't think in any way is he saying that what happened on the cross wasn't unique and one of a kind and incredibly essential to what we understand about our faith. But what I think he's saying is the fullness of what happened on the cross is in the resurrection, that without the resurrection, simply a man died for his cause. Right? I mean, Jesus isn't the first person, man or woman, to die for what they believed in, whether it was a religious cause or on behalf of a family member or loved one, right? Or risked their lives, gave their lives for patriotic reasons, for some type of national freedom. So many in human history have died, right? Willingly died, laid their lives down on behalf of others. 
But it's the resurrection that sets Jesus' death apart, right? It's something that has transcendent power to affect our lives. And so Paul's focus then is on the resurrection. So what we understand from the way the Bible maps out human history is this. Genesis 1 and 2, God created all things and they were very good. And God spoke to Adam, his creation, and said, Adam, you can have dominion over everything you see except for this one particular tree. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and not good. And I think it had less to do with what kind of tree it was and more about either being obedient or disobedient. And God said to Adam, here's what will happen. If you taste of the fruit of this tree, your eyes will be opened, right, to now what is not good, sin, and death will follow. And sure enough, since that moment that Adam and Eve disobeyed God in sin, we have lived as human, as the human race under the cloud of sin and death. And so what Christ did on the cross is incredibly significant to our faith. What we see on the cross is, is brutal. It's, it's, it's ugly. It's bloody. It's suffering. Okay? What we're seeing is the wrath of God, the justice of God, being poured out on an object, and his object is his son. Right? I don't think God takes that lightly. I think that's an important part of the gospel message. But what we understand is this. Once Jesus died... And they drove a spear in his side to make sure blood and water flowed out, right? Giving, giving evidence that his, his body was dead. They buried him in a grave. Then on the third day, he rose from the dead saying what? Sin and death will not have the final word over you. He victoriously rose from the grave. Now think about it. If Jesus had just died and didn't overcome death, then what was the point of dying for our sins? If he didn't win the battle, then Jesus, all Jesus did was take on our battle and lose. Think about that. He just became like us. He took on our battle, and he lost like we lose. But the resurrection is what set it apart, setting Jesus apart from any other person who might die on behalf of someone else. And so Paul reminds the Galatian churches an essential element of the gospel that you cannot tamper with is the resurrection. We need the resurrection. We don't need a gospel without the resurrection. We need, right, we need power over sin and death. The next thing that we see in this opening statement from Paul is the substitution of Jesus. Verse 4, let's start in 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. That's an essential part of the gospel. What happened on the cross was not a last-ditch effort from God to try to fix things. That was not God scratching his head going, man, I don't know what to do. Let's try this. What we read all the way back starting in Genesis 3, right at the fall going forward, is that God proactively planned to rescue his people through the death of his son. That was God's plan, proactively, described very vividly from, from historical writings, through poetic writings, through the prophets, both the minor and major prophets of the Old Testament. They all point to Christ as the rescuer. And so this wasn't God in a corner going, I don't know what to do now. 
Jesus, let's see if you can fix things. This was God's proactive love plan to say, Jesus, this is how we're going to display our love to them. We're going to go and we're going to walk among them. Now think about the vulnerability of that, parents, those of you who are parents. I'm going to send my son into battle. He's going to start off as an infant, born of this teenage virgin who doesn't even know how to parent. I mean, right? How much more risky can you get than that? And then he's going to grow up. His trajectory is going to be death on a cross. And that was God's plan. And so we understand that Jesus dying on the cross wasn't he got caught. You can read the Gospels that way. If you're not careful, you'll read about Jesus praying in the garden. He says, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But then there's another statement. What does he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And immediately after that, here comes Judas and the captors, and they arrest Jesus. I love how Jesus, um, how the dialogue went down between him and Pilate. And Pilate's asking him questions. He's given some, some answers. Uh, I love whenever he responds to Pilate. Hey, let me just make one thing clear. This is my paraphrase, by the way. Let me just make one thing clear, Pilate. Nobody takes my life from me. I'm going to die. But I, it's me laying my life down. What does that mean to us then? It means that what Jesus did on the cross was a substitution for me. Jesus took on a debt that I owed, spiritually bankrupt. And the harder I tried, the more behind I got. And Jesus says, here, I'll pay the price for you on the cross. And that's an essential part of our gospel. A God that loves us that much. That he would say, stay where you are, let me go do this for you. The substitution of Jesus where he gave himself. The last thing is this I want to point out. He gave himself up for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. I think we too quickly skip over this word deliver. It's a really significant part of the gospel. Um, Paul, the same author, when he's writing to the, the, to, um, the Colossians, writing a letter to their church, he says it this way in chapter 1, 13 and 14. He's speaking of Jesus and he says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, what happened on our behalf on the cross isn't only that our sins were forgiven, but that in the, our sins being forgiven, we've been transferred. Transferred from what? From a, from a lot, actually. Romans 6, Paul says this. Before you knew Christ, you presented yourselves as slaves to sin. You willfully did that. Here, take me. Let me obey you. Not only that, we walked in darkness. What does that mean? Confusion. Separation from the Father. What else have we been transferred from and to? Not God's children. To what? Adopted in. And not just, not just stepkids, co-heirs with Christ. You see, I think if we're not careful, the gospel will simply become to us um, a fixer-upper. Uh, this project where, where God just simply makes what's already good better right? Or, or finds us where we are and kind of inspires us to be a little bit better. But, but Paul would say, that's not the gospel. If you believe that, you've missed it. 
The point is this. God has made everything new for you. Everything new. Your identity has changed. You're not who you used to be anymore. You've been delivered. See, it's a significant word. And it bears influence on how we understand the gospel of Christ. And so before Paul gets into anything with the churches there, he says, let me remind you of this gospel I brought to you some years ago. Let me remind you how it changed your life. But let me also remind you that that gospel hasn't changed. Now, as we move forward, um, one of the things that Paul's going to do is he's going to be telling his own story. We'll get to that in a minute. And he's going he's gonna to remind the Galatians that he didn't bring to them a bunch of canned answers. He didn't go to seminary in Jerusalem. He wasn't discipled by Peter or James or John. He's, he's going to say, I barely had any acquaintances with them. So, so I'm not bringing you canned answers. I brought to you from my own experience what Christ gave me. The pure, unadulterated, not distorted gospel message. Resurrection, the substitution, deliverance of Jesus. Verse 6, he says, I am astonished. Now, this is not um, astonished in a good way, as we're going to read. Not like I'm sitting in wonder and amazement. This is a parent to a child. I'm really surprised of what you've done. Like, it really caught me off guard. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting. Pay attention to these words. Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Did did you notice the wording there? As you turn from the gospel, you turn from Christ. Right? He he is only, he's only instituted one rescue mission. It's right here. And if you turn to another gospel, essentially you're deserting Christ. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you. And then verse 7. Not that there is another one, but there are some who would trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now this word distort means to pervert or to turn around. And so we hear that, we would think, well then, what we would understand the distortion of the gospel to be is the complete opposite. But the way that Paul's using it is actually that it's just been slightly altered. And when you slightly alter it, you might as well turn the whole thing around. Now, now let's talk for a second about what they were doing, okay? So um, in this particular area, um, the, the churches that were springing up, they were some distance from Jerusalem. Uh, they were, people were, were hearing the gospel being preached. They were responding to it. And then they, be, they became a community. They would meet together and formulate a church, Okay? However, much like the 21st century, um, rather than submitting themselves to the gospel, finding their identity in the gospel, they would take the grace of what they loved about the gospel and synthesize it with whatever they were used to in their culture. Whether they're from a a pagan background, from an atheist or agnostic background, whatever their former belief system was, they would put it together and synthesize the two together. Well, the primary influence for this region was Judaism, okay? The, the influence of the Jewish faith. And so what was happening in these churches was this. They were hearing the gospel. They were responding to this beautiful grace and mercy of God 
finding a renewal in that, finding that the burden had been dropped and like a, a weight had been lifted and, and, and there was joy in their hearts, but, but somehow they were unwilling to let go of the practices of their former religion, Judaism. And so they were adding to the faith these, this list of practices or the system of religion. So rather than simply being transformed into the image of Christ, they were striving to conform people into a religious mold. And we still do that today. Can we just be honest? We still do that today. There are different versions of it. There are the direct versions. Some of you maybe grew up in a church experience where the gospel was preached, but it was, it was deeply overshadowed, if you will, by works, right? This is what it looks like to be a good Christian. This is how you act. And so here's your wardrobe options. Here's your English to Christianese dictionary so you'll know the wording. Here's where you stand up and here's where you sit down. And Now, many of us came to Christ in those environments, right? We fell in love with the grace of God and presented through these, the gospel being preached. But some of us, were in these environments that were also tempered with this conformity to a religious mold. Things that had nothing to do with the gospel, right, were then placed on us as weights or shackles. And others maybe had a, a more indirect experience, right? Nobody ever said that to you, but it was implied, right? Here's the songs we sing, here's, the, here's what we do, here's your, right, here's, Here's your Sunday school class. Here's, and, and good things, right? Things God used as tools, yet, if we're not careful, can quickly become a system that if you're not doing these things, right, not earning all of your stars and attendance in Sunday school, all of a sudden you start feeling guilty. You see how that's counterintuitive to the gospel? The very thing that God did to remove guilt from us? And then oftentimes we'll slip back into a religious system to do what? Just heap on some more guilt. Show me again how I'm unfaithful and lousy and can't meet your standards. And so Paul's going after this. And he's very passionate, a little bit confrontational. Look at what he says next. Verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you already, let him be accursed. And in great Paul fashion, anytime he wants to make sure that we heard him, just like a lot of us as parents, we say it again. Verse 9, as we have said before, so I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This Greek word accursed is the, the word used to, um, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that means this, to be given over for God to judge. That's what the word means. To be, to, to, to be in a situation, right, where it's just so vile and so wrong that you would say, you know what, God's going to have to judge this one. I'm, I don't even want to touch it. That's what it literally means to be accursed here, to be put before God. Now, that's a pretty strong thing for Paul to say, isn't it? Right? You feel the weight of his tone? Like he's not just saying, guys, I want to gently correct you here. He's saying, I'm telling you what, if anybody preaches to you a different gospel, let him be handed over to God. 
Now think about that. Who is Paul saying is ultimately the one offended here? Him? God. Now think about that, parents. I know we're not all parents, but most of you are. From, I try to think from God's perspective as a father, the amazing sacrifice, the experience he went through, sending his son in vulnerability to walk among the earth, to die on the behalf of people who were very ungrateful, by the way, to be spat upon, to be kicked, to be punched, to have the facial hair ripped out of his skin, to be mocked and made fun of, to be nailed to a cross and to die. Now, you think God takes that lightly? I don't think so. And that's the weight we feel in Paul's words. If anybody jacks with what God did, let him answer to God. You feel that? Let him, let him be before God accursed. If you're taking notes, the power of the gospel lies within the gospel without being modified or added to. A lot of different ways we try to do this. Modify the gospel, and it's, it's so, so ironic that this beautiful message from God that's so freeing to us, that we would take it and receive it quickly, but then what? Begin to slip right back into slavery. Slavery to a religious mold, slavery to whatever it might be, cultural ideologies. Look at what Paul says next. I appreciate his honesty and his candidness. He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You know what I believe Paul's trying to say there to the church and to us? I'm not writing this to you to make you like me anymore. <laughs> I've been there as a parent. The point of this conversation isn't that dad would become the hero. But I love you enough to tell you what is true. I'm not writing this. I, I, I love you, but I'm not writing this to make you like me anymore. I'm writing you to tell you what is true. And then look at what he does. He goes right into his own story, his own experience with Christ and how Christ transformed him away from a religious mold into the image of Christ. Verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. What do you mean by that, Paul? Well, he's going he's to explain. And the short of it is this. I didn't get it from anybody else. I didn't get it from Peter. I didn't get it from hanging out with John or James. I didn't get it from going to seminary. This I received from Christ myself. You want the proof? Let me tell you my story. Verse 12. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus. Jesus revealed himself to Paul. This is Acts 9. Acts 8 into Acts 9 is a beautiful testimony in a longer uh, length. Verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age and among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. I think we, we get into the writings of Paul and we quickly forget who he was. Acts 8 
Paul is the leading persecutor of the church of Christ. He is the man who is seeking permission to have heads roll for any person who would stand up and say, I believe and I follow Christ. He's leading the charge. He's the one who would roll into town and people would begin to go back in their houses and shut their doors, hoping that they didn't hear this. He was the man leading the cause to drag people out of their homes who claimed to follow Christ out to the edge of town to be stoned or to be hung or to be burned or to be beheaded. I mean, this is, this is a terrorist in the New Testament. Like, Paul, before he was converted, right, he, he would have fit in well in ISIS, going from town and village to do what? To stamp out Christianity and to murder all who would claim to follow Christ. I mean, this is, you can't make this stuff up. And Paul says to the church, remember, that's who I used to be? And I wasn't just good at it, I was the best at it. Verse 15, but, I love verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult anyone. What does Paul mean by this is not man's gospel? That's what he means. I encountered Jesus face to face. I didn't immediately consult anybody. Verse 17, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, which is Peter, and I remained with him 15 days. This is after three years. I spent 15 days with Peter, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, And what I'm saying to you before God, I do not lie. Verse 21. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in uh, in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. You hear what he's saying? Like, people didn't, I was known for my reputation, but nobody knew me in person. All they knew was, Paul rose into town, you go inside. You pray to God that he passes by your house. He's saying, now I'm rolling into town, and that's all people know about me. They, they, they only, verse 23, only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. See, the gospel, as it is, without changing a thing, has the power to transform the worst of humanity into the perfect image of Jesus. The worst of humanity, including the worst of me. And that's powerful. In Acts 9, Jesus appears to a terrorist. He says, I've chosen you to work for me. And Paul said, that changed everything. You don't believe it? Look at my life. I wasn't brainwashed into this thing. Nobody gave me a bunch of canned answers. I brought to you what Jesus said to me. And here's the thing. Now he's writing this letter years later. And the reason he started there in the first five verses, I believe, is to say, look, nothing's changed. It's the same gospel. I've now met Peter. 
right? I've now spent time in Jerusalem. I've now been around the other guys. He's going to talk about it in a minute. And I even went before them and set the gospel down. I said, you guys tell me, tell me where I'm wrong. Look at what he's going to say next. This is Galatians 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation, and I sat before them. He's going to be talking about Peter, James, and John. I set it before them. And he says, but though privately before those who seemed influential. I didn't want to embarrass anybody. I didn't want to put, he's just, I brought this before Peter, James, and John privately. The gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. And now here I am, years later, and I'm here to tell you my gospel has not changed. Just to highlight um, what I believe Paul's getting at here. We're going to look at Galatians 5 for just a moment. In a few weeks, we'll actually be there for the whole sermon, but I just want to look at something quickly with you. If you go to Galatians 5 and start in verse 2, we're going we're gonna to feel from Paul the weight of how important this is to him that we not mess with this beautiful gospel message that God wrote. Look at Galatians 5, 2. Paul says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So of all the influences on these early Christians and all the, the, um, the, the, uh, the Jewish influence, one of the primary things that they were influenced by was circumcision, the outward mark, the outward mark that said you were set apart. Well, that's not what the gospel says. The gospel says we're set apart by the work God is doing inside of us, transforming us, making us new, right? Taking away shame and guilt. These are the identity markers of those who are in Christ. But evidently, those who were synthesizing, following Christ with Judaism had slid into the churches in Galatia, and they're saying, oh yeah, it is a gospel of grace and mercy and forgiveness by faith, but you must do these things too. And one of the things they were doing is requiring men to be circumcised. So it says, verse 3, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. Yet because, I want you to hear verses 4 and 5. I'm back in Galatians 2, by the way. Yet because, if, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into what? Slavery. See, this wasn't just about circumcision or not circumcision. It was about being a slave in a religious mold to somehow buy into the idea I can make God happy by performing by wearing the right clothes, by saying the right words. Okay, it wasn't just circumcision, it was also what foods you ate. Okay, part of the Jewish culture. What days you worshiped on. Right, all these religious things were being added to faith in Christ. And Paul says it was essentially being slaved again to a system that you couldn't succeed in. 
Some people look like they're mastering the system, right? They look like they're, they're playing the role well, but we know the truth. It's just a facade. You can see down into the depths of who that person is. You're going to see shame and guilt, right? Failure. No clear understanding or confidence in identity. Because why? Their identity is rooted in their performance for God, not in his performance for them. So jumping back to Galatians 5, sorry to keep doing that to you. I want you to finish this thought with me. So verse 6 of Galatians 5. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Verse 7. You were running well. I remember when I was with you. You started this journey really well. You were on fire. You were moved. You were walking in freedom. You were excited. You were in love with Christ. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Then he uses a a baking illustration. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. What does he mean by that? If you work with dough, you know how that works. You take a little leaven dough and you mix it in with a big batch of dough that's not leaven. And what? The whole batch is now leaven. That's how he's saying that this works in the church. Just a few people came in and began to what? Corrupt the whole place. You bought into their lies. You bought into their systems. Look at what he says in 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Verse 12. I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. Now, that's a play on words, okay? If that's what you're wondering, yes, it is. It's a play on words from Paul. However, he's not doing it to make a joke. He's doing it to make a significant point. The word literally means to be cut off. Right? And so what he's saying is, like, if, if this is what you're saying you have to do to make God, you might as well just emasculate yourself. But ultimately what he's saying is, I wish those people were cut off from the church. Now, why does he feel this way? Because they weren't tampering with small things, they were tampering with the main thing. And Paul knows, if you mess with the gospel, right, the whole thing is messed up. The gospel, has, we'll see in Galatians 5, set us free from religious systems and from performing to earn God's favor and from trying not to do bad things so we can spend time with God. The gospel set us free from those things. Don't you dare mess with it. Don't you dare make it a system that would call you back into slavery. Come on. And we're just as prone and guilty in the 21st century as they were in the first We are. If you're taking notes, this is the last note in your sermon notes. Rather than conforming people into a religious mold, the gospel, I love this, finds us where we are. Aren't you glad that God is willing to find you where you are? Did you know that you don't have to come to church? You know where Paul was? He was walking down a road. Now, is the church important to God? Absolutely. This is where we come together, we learn, we stir one another up in affection for Christ. This is an important part of your journey. 
right? But, but here's, here's the point. God finds us where we are. He finds us where we are in our ideologies. He finds us where we are in our, in our doubts, in our, in our struggle with faith. He finds us where we are in our sin. Did you know that God is not embarrassed to be around sinners? It's one of the remarkable things about the accusations against Christ. He was one of the, the most frequent accusations is that he is not afraid to spend time with sinners. That's the heart of God, right? God is not embarrassed to find us where we are. When he finds us where we are, he delivers us from darkness to light, delivers us from darkness to light, transforms us from guilty to innocent, delivers us, transforms us from guilty to innocent, and conforms us into the image of Jesus, which is where we're going to end today and what that means, to be conformed into the image of Jesus. Finds us where we are, delivers us from darkness to light, transforms us from guilty to innocent, and conforms us into the image of Jesus. I think one of the issues that we have in our current culture is we have a very confused definition or working understanding of holiness. I think when we hear it wholesale in our culture, we think of religious facade, right? We picture a person wearing certain clothing, doing certain things, acting a certain way, and we quickly, in our minds, go to outer appearance, don't we? A lot of us do. That's holiness. That's not how the Bible defines holiness. Um, There's a great book by J.I. Packer uh, called Rediscovering Holiness, and I'm going to read you a quote um, as he uh, explains what true holiness is as an inner character, not an outward facade. And here's what Packer says. He says, genuine holiness is genuine Christ-likeness. We just talked about being conformed to the image of Christ. Genuine holiness is genuine Christ-likeness. And genuine Christ-likeness is genuine humanness. What is he, what's he talking about? I see a lot of people in the world who aren't holy, right? He's talking about Genesis 1 and 2. The way humanness was created, very good. So what we see in Christ, he's modeling Adam before sin. Genuine humanness. The only genuine humanness there is. Love is, or excuse me, love, and now he begins to to describe it. Love in, in the service of God and others. There's a description of holiness, Love in the service of God and others. Humility and meekness under the divine hand. That's that's part of what holiness is. Integrity of behavior expressing the integration of character, wisdom with faithfulness, boldness with prayerfulness, sorrow at people's sins, joy at the Father's goodness, and single-mindedness in seeking to please the Father morning, noon, and night. These were all qualities seen in Christ, the perfect man. There was anything about his outer facade, was there? What a beautiful description of Christ. What a beautiful description of humanity as it was created to be. Humility and meekness, love and service to God and others, integrity of behavior. Does integrity matter? Absolutely. What do we mean by that? Integrity of behavior expressing the integration of character, wisdom with faithfulness, boldness with prayerfulness, and sorrow for people's sins, joy at the Father's goodness, and single-mindedness in seeking to please the Father. 
morning, noon, and night. What a beautiful description of what it means to be transformed on the inside into the character of Christ. Does it happen overnight? No. This is what the New Testament is for. After the Gospels, the New Testament is explaining to us the process that God walks us through to become like Christ. He uses trials, suffering, victories. He uses his word. He uses his spirit. He uses spiritual mentors in your life. He uses all that you experience in life for this process. Paul says it this way in Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you is faithful and he is going to finish it and to bring it to completion. What's the, what's the process? What's the bringing it to completion? That every day on the inside, I would be more and more transformed into the image of Christ. Here's what I say often, and I want to say this if you've never heard me say this. Okay, in all humility, I have a few friends in the room, people who think that they like me. Could I just say this? You don't like me. If you do. If you don't like me, then you go, that's right, I don't. But those of you who do, you don't like me. I'm telling you. I know who I used to be, and I was pretty good at fooling people for a while, but ultimately you would find me out, and you would see my true character, and you wouldn't want to be my friend. If you like me, you know what you like? You like Christ in me, period. I've got no room to boast. It's the transforming work of God in my life that is bringing about character with integrity and faithfulness, meekness, humility, love and service to God and others. I love you well because he loves me well, not because I'm good at loving well. Ask my wife. Ask my boys. Love them with all that I am. But there are many moments when I'm a horrible lover of my wife and my boys. But what's happening inside of me? I'm learning from Jesus how to love people well, even when they frustrate me, so that I might get to the place where I can love them when they spit on me. I'm not there yet. Okay, I'm not there, I'm working on it. But you get it, right? What we saw in the life of Christ, that's our aim as humanity. That we would see the world and love the world as he did. That's what it means to be transformed into the image of Christ. We're gonna stop there for today and we're going to actually um, celebrate communion together. And, uh, and so here's what we're, we're gonna do for communion. Um, we have three tables now, two at the front and one at the back. And... Um, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11, our instructions on communion. I'm going to pray for us. Um, as I'm praying, I'm going to ask our prayer partners to come to the front and to also be available at the back. They'll be wearing lanyards with a little black badge that says prayer partner. Um, if you just want somebody to pray with or talk to, that's what they're here for. Um, you're free to come up and, and kneel. I know, I know some of you um, find a closeness with God in doing that. You're welcome to come up and kneel and, and pray. Um, but, but you're welcome to stay where you're seated. Here's what I am going to ask us to do. Let's take our time. Let's take our time. Let's think about this beautiful gospel, what the resurrection, the substitution, and the deliverance mean to you personally. And then when you come take communion when you're ready, let's, let that be your celebration of, of what Christ has done for you and in you.